Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Russell, the founding host of the podcast. Um, you know, I make movies, I work on movies, I am a full-time post-production producer, um, and I'm just finishing up work on my first feature as a writer-director called The Alternate. So I just do a lot of movie stuff, let's put it that way. <laughs> I'm involved with the movies. Yes, Exactly. I am also involved with the movies. My name is Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer, and casting director sometimes. Um, I have two features under my belt. Uh, Speed of Life on Showtime. I'm also a former oh. film critic, current distribution consultant, who used to manage the Creative Distribution Initiative at Sundance. All right. So this week, we have filmmaker, uh, writer, director, Anna Elizabeth James on the show to talk about her smash Netflix hit, Deadly Illusions which was definitely trending on Netflix for uh, quite some time when it was released. Uh, Anna talks with us about how the film came about. Um, and also this like really interesting story about how she approaches her entire career and um, creates an infrastructure for business relationships in order to find investors. I hope that that's not too vague and is accurate to what we talked about. Uh, this is one of my favorite conversations we have ever had actually i think anna is just a dream and a real inspiration and um and like a powerhouse don't go away after the interview uh because we have a short film from australian filmmaker cassandra werner called nightlight and um we also have two emails to read on the show so enjoy enjoy us hearing us talk to anna elizabeth james Let's get super granular. So um, tell us the elevator pitch for Deadly Illusions. Deadly Illusions is about a novelist who is in retirement. She's taking care of her children and she's forced to come out of retirement and write another book in her series. And in doing so, the line between what is real and imaginary becomes confused. Awesome. And then how many days did you shoot? 17. Nice. Nice. Um, if you could speak to the rough budget, tell us about the resources you had. Ooh, so the script went out and it was considered a hot script. So we were cruising with this idea of a $4 million budget. And this was my third feature, so it didn't seem too crazy. Um, but the script was too, I guess you could call it risque. I had a letter at the beginning that explains my motives and, um, reasons for writing such a um, sexually charged piece of material. I wanted to create something that was more tantalizing than pornography or mm. that thesis, um, <laughs> but less is more. So, you know, folks loved the script, but they were hesitant. So in that hesitance, in that hesitancy, 
uh, we were forced to re-examine the budget and bring it down to like 1.8. It's <laughs> a huge difference. Yeah, a huge difference, massive difference. And when I met with Kristen Davis, you know, she was so sweet. I offered her a very small amount of money and she said, okay, I'm in at the end of our three hour meeting, but you're going to have to pay me a little bit more, um, which caused me to really evaluate the numbers. And um, anyway, we ended up landing around going into production a $2.9 million budget. Um, and then the final, final budget is three and a half million. Wow. That's amazing. Um, how long did you spend working on the film from being brought on to its release? Well, or create writing it. Yeah, creating it. Yeah, because you, you yeah, it's your yeah. original script. Well, yeah, that's that's funny you say brought on because it is. <laughs> once the idea hits your brain, you're brought on. Um, so the idea came to me the day after shooting wrapping principal principal photography on Image Chance with Greer. I was in the shower. Yep, I was. And I got out of the shower and, I, and this image hit me. If I could do anything with Greer, what would it be? And it was her in a pool being sweetly seductive, not knowing she's being seductive, um, mm -hmm. nannying children. And I thought, what is that? And what is that imagery? And what <laughs> in my head? Wow, amazing. So how many years ago was that? I was like... Yeah, so we wrapped production on Emma's Chance in 2014 or 2015. Wow. Oh. So, and then I didn't write anything down until 2019. Wow. Um, or no, 20, 2018. I have the, I actually have the date right here. Hold on. I'll look in the book. I'll find <laughs> the exact date. Uh, I think, and then what I wrote it down and then, um, well, what happened was I was messaging with Greer around New Year's. She was in London and I said, when you get back, we should have coffee. I have this idea that's been rattling around in my brain. Um, and she said, okay, great. So we set a date and I thought, shoot, I better write this down. Um, so I forced myself to write it down before that meeting. And then when I met with her, I pitched her the entire idea. Um, Wow. So it's, yeah, it's actually all right here where I wrote it down. Here we go. Wow. <laughs> and so that's what you wrote down before your meeting? You had it like freehand, like wrote, wrote down the concept? Yeah. So the concept has been in my head for a while. So a few years. So January 18th, 2017, I call it Sweet Illusion, Erotic Thriller, Initial Thoughts. Um, wow. Triangle. And I asked myself, who is the bad guy? won't know until act three, um, maybe. <laughs> and then, wow. yeah, so I pitched her the entire concept at that meeting, um, probably January 20th of 2017. Took me, I was in post-production on my second feature, so took me a good minute to write it. I wrote the treatment first, and then I pitched it. I was meeting with investors, finding investors to fund my development side of my company, Kissing Tail Productions. Um, and I met a lovely investor from back east who fell in love with the treatment. And then once that closed, I went in and wrote the script with Kiss and Tell owning the IP, which my investor owns part of or half of. Um, and it took me six months to write really hardcore writing, probably 
a month and a half. Um, I finished it in January of 2019. And I sent it to Greer uh, February of 2019. And then we shot it in October of 2019. It took us seven months to get it off the ground. Wow. Amazing. I have like 5,000 more questions, but we're not there I yet. This wow. is. <laughs> um, can you talk to the size of your crew that you had? Crew, great question. Uh, I wasn't able to get a tax incentive in Utah, which I was hoping for. The material was too risque, too scandalous. Oh. Um, so where did I go? I went to New Mexico and found a lovely team there. There was actually a lot of, uh, a lot of my guys and girls were, um, on other productions and they heard about deadly and the energy we had, I think, and they left those productions and they came to, to my team, which was really fun. Um, wow. And the guys, a lot of the guys, like, they come up to me and whisper in my ear, we work on so many Netflix um, properties and, I, you know, things that we, we, what you have here is really special. So it was really fun to get that sort of feedback from such an incredible, impeccable crew. Our crew was top of the line from New Mexico, for sure. Wow. And then compared to all the other projects you've made, how difficult was this one? Well, the other two projects I had made were horse movies. And the first movie was with horses that were not trained to be movie horses. So on a scale of one to 10, that was a 14. Um, and we shot that in 106 degree temperatures in September. It's very difficult. Uh, wow. So that was uh, arduous and physically uh, demanding. And then the second movie also was a horse movie more more trained horses but still challenging we had flash floods and red fire ants and um extreme temperatures in that one as well um so with deadly illusions it was more of a psychological fuck can i say that yes yeah um it was because there was a moment where so when you read the script on face value you you see a beginning middle and end right and you're like cool cool like good twist blah 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 um but if you don't deeply read the script you might miss some things you know um and so what i found was some people on my team bless their hearts they didn't know didn't fully understand the the full story in all of its facets and layers and so there was moments where people would be like wait and they would like try to like wait does this you know, and so I was like, just trust me, just trust me, you know? Um, and so there was a lot of trust going on. And eventually when we, once we had our groove, I think everyone saw that my clarity was there and that's what they needed to know the most. And so there was that, there was also just the material is so tricky. We had half of our shoot was a closed set. We had nine intimacy scenes, nine to 10, which I storyboarded and had to get approved with many lawyers and managers and agents um, all across the board looking at my drawings that, by the way, I cannot draw. Um, <laughs> yeah, and if those were ever released, people would have a payday looking at those. Um, so, you know, between that and and the, the intimacy scenes, we had an intimacy coordinator, which helped a ton. 
um, each of the intimacy scenes were, were, uh, you know, structured in a way much like a stunt. So everyone knew what, at what part of the scene things were happening and there was, it was timed out. And so I really, I really think we were able to shoot those scenes quickly because a 17 day shoot is pretty crazy. Um, because of that timing and because of my intimacy coordinator and also in making the actors feel safe, especially with Greer, she really, um, you know, needed that and appreciated that. Um, so yeah, it was, it was hard. It was really hard. <laughs> so many questions, <laughs> so many things to talk about. I it's mean, insane. Really? I, I don't know if I've ever yeah. really felt this way before, but Liz, do you want to go first with the first question? I, I hope I'm not taking energy away from this, but I want to go back in time like I normally do because like, you know, Anna and I used, to, we went to USC film school together and you, we didn't really know each other at film school, but I knew of you. And I knew that you had this really interesting background, almost like a first life and then the second life came to film. And I never have heard the story from you. So if you're willing to share how you came to film, I would, I really think it's fascinating and amazing. Um, and I would love to hear it. be as quick as possible. So as a kid, I grew up in a, as an only child. Um, with no really strong religious background or anything like that. My father was a veterinarian in the countryside and my mom lived in the suburbs. Um, so as an only child, I read voraciously. I read a ton of Christopher Pike books that really seemed to dominate my childhood. Um, and that was, as you, as I look back, it's very like pulpy fiction, right? Murder mystery, a little bit of teenage angst. Um, so, and then I also was a voracious journal writer. I wrote in my journal every day for a period of six years. Um, I was just religious about it. So I think those two things sort of laid down a foundation. Meanwhile, I joined a very stringent religion. Um, at the time, it was, it was a safe place for me, the Mormon religion. I was 15. Um, by the time I was 22 and had been married and had my first child, I knew I wanted to exit the religion, but I had no idea how I could do it. Um, it really served my purpose as a young person, as a teenager. Um, but in my early twenties as being an ambitious person, it just, things weren't lining up and I struggled with the mental gymnastics there, if you know what I'm saying. So um, thus began a journey of like, oh, I'm a novelist. I'm gonna write novels. I'm gonna, you know, mind my way out of this um, situation as a, as a stay-at-home mom and find a way to bring in income. I also flipped houses. I did whatever I could. By the time I was 28 with three children, I met a man by the name of James D'Alessandro. He's in San Francisco. And he mentors the Pixar directors. And he invited me to a writer's group in San Francisco where we read our pages aloud. And I read my pages aloud of a novel I was working on. And he took off his glasses and he looked at me and he said, you're not a, you're not a novelist. And I was like mortified, embarrassed. And he's like, you are a screenwriter. And if I were you, I'd go to Columbia or USC straight away. And I said, but I'm a mom. And he said, I don't care. So it was the first time where someone literally said, gave me permission. Like you have a little, you have a scotch amount of talent. You should do something with that. And I was like, and at that time, Juno had come out and I was obsessed with Diablo Cody um, and that material. And I thought, okay, maybe this is the path I should be on. Um, and thus began my, you know, 
journey into USC. It's amazing. Yeah, thank wow. you. Fascinating. Um, I just wrote down three questions. I'm going to go with the first one just because, you know, whatever. Um, you talked earlier about you wrote the treatment for the movie, which you showed us, which was awesome. And then you talked about how you got it like funded or or are the funds for development. So you got like maybe paid to write it. Can you just talk about that process a little bit and how that works and how you were able to get the money to, to actually write the script before anything even was written? Yeah, so when we graduated from USC, I think Liz and I graduated around the same time. Um, boy, that's a struggle, right? Uh, everyone's telling you to get a job, get a job. You chose a crazy life path, come back to the real world. Um, and I was just thoroughly convinced that I was meant to write and I needed to keep writing. I would do whatever it took, even though everyone in my world was like, you're crazy. Um, bless all of them. They just cared about me. Right. And so I decided at that time, Airbnb started. So I Airbnb, I pimped out my apartment and I would sleep in my car now and then. So I could write just every day. I would spend six to eight hours writing every day. And I wrote, I think maybe eight to 10 scripts, um, during this time period of three to four years. And as one does that, you realize, okay, there's gotta be a better way to do this, right? How could I get paid better than just cleaning apartments um, in the morning and writing the afternoon? And so I came up with a business plan and I had been courting different investors or people with money. And I thought, well, what if, if I was an investor, how could I diversify my investment? Like, could I invest in you know, five or six IPs, one goes, and then all the others become more valuable. So I developed um, a strategy with my my best friend, her husband's a CFO, and he created a spreadsheet showing um, five different ways the money would come back over a period of seven to 10 years. And so I took that out to investors. Um, I met with a lawyer, my lawyer, Jennifer is amazing. She said, this business plan is so wonderful. I want to take it back to the firm. This is a perfect structure for writer directors, right? Because the writer director is like very committed to getting their ideas on the page, right? And seeing them come to, to fruition. Like I don't write to sell a script that has, I have no desire to do that. I write so I can, so I can make them. Um, and so that's a different kind of breed and that creates a different kind of result for an investor. So anyway, the idea was um, with this investor that he would invest in a certain number of scripts. And then with if one goes or when one goes, all of the others become more valuable. And so um, and and that was that was, you know, showcased in a in a really thought out, detailed Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> OK, <laughs> more. Wait, wait, oh, wait. Can I get a little bit of clarity, though? So the investment in in you as an artist and in these scripts, I get the kind of contingency and the increased value. I don't know the business terms to be super frank, um, but <laughs> I don't even know all my questions. I'll, are. I'll say it like this. So basically I'm a WGA writer and within our development company, I am paid to write a script for half the price of a WGA script, wow. but it's enough it's enough for me to live a comfortable life. I don't need yeah. a lot of funds, right? We know how to live bare minimum. I live in Utah. I have low overhead. I have like, you know, no credit card debt, car payments, all that. I worked really hard to put myself in that position. So low overhead makes it so the scripts 
So when I write a script and it's sitting on a shelf, it has equity mm-hmm. in it technically, right? Yeah. And so right, it, even though it hasn't sold yet, if there's scripts on a shelf and they have equity in them and one sells, then suddenly the others. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Become more valuable than the equity. Well, you're not even saying theoretically more valuable. You're saying actually more valuable in the, like, because I was just like, yeah, of course, as a career, you're growing up and like your other projects. Yeah. Okay. This is fascinating. Ulrich, I know you have like 30,000. I'm still, I'm still. Yeah. Well, and, and I would say, I would say, okay, so flipping houses in my twenties taught me about real estate and equity. Yeah. And I think I just applied those principles to screenwriting. Yeah. And when you're toiling and cleaning apartments day after day, your brain think of anything to get out of that situation right so i guess the question is like at a certain point whenever you set this deal up every time you write a script you're getting paid to write that script it's owned by someone else like this other entity that is funding them and then you know then you take them out and you try to sell them you know as a as a director with a producing partner for this company and then when one gets made and funded then it's like all the other ones that they already paid for are like that investment paid for itself because they're going to make money on whatever Deadly Illusions did, for instance. Yeah, I knew I needed an investor that was in it for at least seven years. Really, the, mm. the sweet spot would be five to 10 years. Um, and so, uh, how do I say this? Yeah, I would say there's like, you know, thirty dollars to $40,000 of equity in each of the scripts because I was paid so wow. low but it's enough for me to live um and so the first and and then i own 50 percent of the company and my investor is a back is a background um investor so i have full creative control over how wow. we do everything and that's part of the deal that we set up um and he's also a mentor so he's a businessman and he's a mentor um wow and it's a very cohesive relationship. It's, it's, I'm very lucky. I know that, but I also, um, did, did put myself out there and, you know, yeah. at that time in my life, it was very scary, but I just said, I have to figure this out. Wow. That's like so smart and so amazing that like you were able to come up with this really like thorough thought out plan, you know, and then present it to, I don't know if this was the first person you presented it to, or you presented it to multiple investors, but to have someone see the value there and then say yes. And then obviously it's working out well. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I was approached to do the second horse movie, I didn't want to do another horse tween movie, but I knew that it would be better for the portfolio to show investors. Mm. So I decided to do it because one hit wonder is one thing, but two hits is another thing, right? So there's some sort of bankability with this material. We don't know how far it will go. And the first, so I had scripts on the shelf that I put into the fund. You know, I contribute scripts. He contributed money. The first script that I wrote under the Kiss and Tail banner was Grace, which is Deadly Illusions. Um, so it's our first script. And wow. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about how Emma's Chance really became uh, real, right? So you have this script, you have this amazing uh, mentorship, business relationship with your partner. Um, go into, could you go into like the pitching process of what, because everyone talks about how they got their first feature off the ground, but you have like a much more long-term goal. So it was like one feature of many in your mind. So I'm just curious how you approached that and who you pitched knowing that it was one of a canon. Uh, and also you said Emma's Chance, but I know you meant to say Deadly Illusions because it's very confusing. Uh, no, no, no. I meant Emma's Chance because Emma's Chance was the first one I wanted to hear in terms of pitching the first feature. Okay, so that's, that is a good thing that you brought up then because Emma's Chance and Destined to Ride are owned by somebody else. I was a hired... Oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Wow. So Deadly Illusions is the first movie under the Kiss and Tail banner under this... Oh, I just, I, like, in my mind, I was like, oh, she wrote it first, but then she had these other projects <laughs> that she went into. Okay. So the first two tween horse movies, I did them because I, one, had kids, and two, because I knew it would create a good foundation to go to investors with. Yeah. So, so I guess that the follow-up question then is, like, how integral were the horse movies in setting up this deal that you had that went with Deadly Illusions as the first film? I think, you know, to any filmmaker that's li listening, get that notch on your belt. Just get it. You know, I grew up with horses. My dad was a veterinarian. When the idea was approached, you know, approached to me, I was like, I can do this. I know the horse world like the back of my hand. Um, and so, I mean, I literally wrote Emma's Chance in two weeks. And within two months, we were shooting it. So it, it went very <laughs> And it sold to Sony Pictures. So both, and then the following film also sold to Sony Pictures. So to have a big release like that, even though it's a horse tween movie, it was translated, both films were translated in over 30 languages and they both showed huge profit for Sony. So that was, I felt like enough to show investors that are outside of the film industry. But wow. also it's like the market for live action family films. They're very, it's everything's animation, right? So it's like, there's actually a huge gap in the market. So smart. Yeah. And at the time there was a hole for these specific movies. Now they've been inundated. It's just the way the markets go. Right. And so it's funny because I actually got teased and made fun of by our friends, Liz. And that's fine. They're just, they're like, ha ha, you go to USC and you're going to do family horse movies. Like. You know, and I was like, well, I have kids and I grew up with horses. I don't know. Like, I think I'm going to do this. Yeah, who's, who's laughing, laughing now? Jeez. Yeah. Now when they need a Western director uh, to do a Western thriller, it's like, oh, who's going to be the better choice than you? <laughs> right? Oh, my gosh. That would be amazing. Yeah. I would love to do Western. Like, I loved um, the Coen brothers. Um, gosh, now I can't even think of the name of it. But it came out around that time. Oh, right. no country? Are we thinking that far back? No. No, with Haley Seinfeld. Um, oh, um, yeah. True Grit. True Grit. Thank you. Sorry. Um, which is based off a novel. Uh, there's definitely a world. There's, I won't, I won't say everything, but there's definitely a space in my head that I've been <laughs> working on that involves unicorns. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, fun. Oh, my goodness. Well, Okay, I, I have a, so the, one of the things when listening to podcasts that drives me crazy is when people say things like, yeah, I got hired to do that thing. And then like, right. you know, we move on through it. So like, talk about how you got hired to direct the first horse movie. Like, how did that opportunity present itself? You know, 
Thank you for asking that. I really think it comes down to those relationships in your life that you that you really need to be careful with because they might turn out to be a huge job opportunity three or four years later. Um, I randomly met this this guy named Tyler Coney um, at the Village Idiot <laughs> in LA one night random, and we were just spit firing like back and forth questions. And he was going, he was at USC as an undergrad, and and was going to go into um, finance in New York, right? His, his family's from back east. That's what he was headed to do. And I, you know, he found out I make movies, or I'm at USC, and I said, "You should, you should come to our set." Because I was thinking maybe he could be a future investor, um, and he came to Haven's Point, our set. And I think even our Haven's Point, Haven's Point was a film we did at USC that Liz knows about. Um, so Tyler showed up to that, and he caught the bug. And four years later, he calls me up and he says, "Hey, I got a movie that I'm about to get off the ground." And at this point, he's a sales. He has a sales company. He's a sales rep or a sales. Um, Film sales. There we go. Sorry. Um, and so I go in and I pitch for this this movie called The Escort. And I, I loved it. Um, and I didn't get it. And then he said, well, I have something else that I think you'd be good at. Um, and so we met for coffee and he pitched me the rough idea of a horse rescue movie. Um, and I was like, oh, I could do this in my sleep, you know. So and I also did it for very little money. You know, I think getting your first notch, you have to just be willing to, to, you know, put the work in. Um, but I had yeah. other revenue streams, or I had other, in, you know, income coming in from other places that I had built up. I read, I read a book um, that really changed my life. It's Stephen King's book on writing. It's called. Oh Art. yeah. And the first half of the book is his start, how he got his start. And he was working two jobs. Um, and the second job was at night and he was doing laundry. And the thing about doing laundry or cleaning or anything that's monotonous, it allows the brain to go elsewhere. Like you're doing the physical job, but you're actually working in your mind mm -hmm. on something else. And I really think there's wisdom in that for anyone who's creative. Um, when you have to pay the bills, just find something that's monotonous so your brain can keep working. I have a I have a question, but it's gonna it's gonna be like a four hour answer, and there is no answer, and it's not a good question. Um, Ask <laughs> it. It's like I just want to know how you do it. Like I want to know what your day is like. I want to know how you evaluate people. I want to know how you have like how you have a family and you work so hard. I just I'm in awe of you, and I'm very confused about how like to figure out how you do it so i'm just saying all the questions out loud like literally on our outline is you have so much chutzpah tell me how like that's a question that i want to know <laughs> but i love it it's um it's it's seriously the the center post in my life chutzpah. so it's funny because i've been analyzing myself on this like what you know and I went to the USC uh, Trojan party at Sundance before COVID, the year before COVID hit, for the first time. I have never gone to this alumni party that everyone goes to. So I show up at this party and I had this like epiphany while I was there because everyone was coming up to me and talking to me. And 
wanting to know they want to meet for lunch they want to figure out how they can get their first feature off the ground and i'm like and i and how do i say this in the night like i basically said to myself but we went to the same school like we had the same information (laughs) and then i realized i've never been to this party in fact i never go to parties i don't go out on a Wednesday and get drinks. I don't go to meetings. I literally get up and I grind. And I, when I wake up in the morning, whatever hits my mind, basically I've learned that the thing that I really don't want to do that makes me want to vomit is probably the thing I should do that day. Mm. And I call that hitting your targets. So we have a way of procrastinating well, we, we come up with excuses not to hit our target because we should do this and this and this and this and this. But really, that main thing that makes you want to vomit um, is is actually the thing that's going to move your needle, right? And so if you do, if you hit your targets over a period of time, you're going to suddenly move, right? And so at this USC party, I was like, oh my goodness, I've been on an island by myself, literally in the middle of utah right um (laughs) there's no bars near me there's nothing the the only thing i have to do is is take care of my kids feed them make sure they're clothed and bathed um feed my dogs too you know all of that and just just focus on those targets i don't know if that helps but you also know like you were saying that relationships are pivotal too so it's like if you don't network how do these relationships come into play i know that's really Gotcha. Yeah, good one, Liz. (laughs) Okay, Okay. there's a difference between going to drinks and shooting the shit and someone who calls you up and says, I need help or I need to vent or how do I get past this hump, right? So I make a concentrated effort to help those who reach out to me in those moments and I try and make time for that and help them through that. And then what happens I think is like, there's a bonding. Like Tyler and I, I call him my work husband and he calls me his work wife. He has this really fun casino heist movie called Payline that um, I'm gonna direct for him. And, you know, we want stars like Megan Fox and Mel Gibson. Um, (laughs) But when he calls me up, like, it's like, hey, work husband, like, we just really get each other, but that's because we've been through so much. There's so much trust that has been built. Like he has my back and I have his back, you know? And I think, I don't know. And same thing with, you know, Daniel Hanna and Brian Schofield, my editors on my four features, you know, I'm working on helping getting their features off the ground um, right now, but the, the trust is so deep because it's been, we've been through so much together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just no bullshit. Like you were saying, shoot the shit. It's like meaningless. These networking things—they don't fuel you. Exactly, yeah. and and I think also like there's this weird thing where, look, I was Mormon and I had kids young. If I wasn't Mormon, I would have them later on, right? So I get it. But because I had kids young, the silver lining for me is I don't have time to shoot the shit. Yeah. Everything <laughs> has to count. Because if I'm not making it count, I'm robbing my kids of their mother. So yeah, I think wow. very, there's a, there's a, 
um, brevity to it, right? It's it's really interesting because like you know we hear this a lot like the partnerships like you know you you almost always I would say and Liz correct me if I'm wrong but it seems like people who are very successful always have really great partners you know whether it be like producers or you know sales agents somebody who they they really they really trust and they work well with it it seems like that seems and even like co-directors like we've seen we've talked to a lot of co-directors who have that kind of relationship but um. It's interesting this whole thing about like going to that party and like people asking you how they do it and you're like, but just do it. Let's just go out and make your movie. But I mean, easier said than done, I think. Um, anyways, I do have a question. So <laughs> I wanted to talk about um, going back to, to Deadly Illusions. Like, you know, you have this deal, you have this investor, you have this whole thing set up, but that's all well and good. But how do you get a Netflix deal before production? Like, how does that come together? Like. Can you speak to that a little bit? We had, um, our crew members had worked on Netflix movies, but we were not a Netflix movie. We were purely independent. Oh, wow, okay. So we did not have Netflix yet. Um, what happened was, so this is another interesting thing. Um, you, when, when, when you have no money and you're trying to do a big thing, you sort of have to take the scraps, right? So the scraps exist in these weird pockets. And one of those weird pockets is over Thanksgiving break. Shows don't shoot over Thanksgiving break. Big budget films don't do that. So that's your window of opportunity to get bigger name stars um, if you're willing to straddle that break. So we shot November 20th to December 15th, I think. And we straddled the break. So we took on that expense of flying out, coming back in, yada, yada, yada for everyone. But in the end, it offset a lot of things. So, so I say that because everyone told me to push. You should push, you push up, you should push. If I had pushed, the movie wouldn't have been shot because COVID hit. And that goes back to waking up and wanting to vomit. I wanted to literally throw up every day from October 15th to November 20th. I did not know <laughs> how I was going to do it. Um, we lo location scouted in New Mexico with my DP and co-producer over Halloween just to see if we could find a house. And I found a house and I made friends with the owner and I basically begged her. I became like best friends with her and begged her, can we please shoot in your house? Um, and I had very little money, right? And so once I got the house and I knew I had Kristen Davis, it was like, okay, this is it. Um, and everyone said, you're, you're not gonna make the November 20th deadline. There's no way. And I said, but if I don't do it right now, the movie will fall apart. So it's either, it's either you do it or you don't. Like you either jump off the cliff or you don't, right? And so that's when I, I was talking about earlier is like, I really, once I focus and I just pull the trigger and I don't, I don't think about it too much. So I'm really proud of that because we got it in the can and then we went through post-production and then we had a viewing in April of 2020 where sales agents came out, XYZ was there, a lot of different people were there and I was so excited. I thought if we could just get a great sales agent and just make sure we make back our money, that's all I care about. Never, ever did I think Netflix would be in the equation. Just. Hmm just thought we would be like pure independent art house film, like not mainstream or anything. And so 
Anyway, Voltage came in and they loved the film and they sent me like this huge strategy on how we get all our money back because that was really important for me. Um, and then in July, Jonathan Dector at Voltage called me up and said, congratulations, you're a Netflix director. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, we wow. sent it to Netflix. Um, and he's like, we, you know, the details will come in. But so that was in July. So from July of 2020 until March 18th, I couldn't tell anyone. Wow. It was crazy, right? Um, and then they just called us up one day and they're like, yeah, your movie's going to be released next week. We didn't even know when it was going to be released. Wow. Was the um, was the license fee, did it go towards your goal of recoupment or profit? Yes, but it it's not. So I think with this movie, um, obviously it is now, we you could say it is a commercial success. Um mm -hmm because it did hit all these markets and languages and whatnot. But at the time, I think it was really out there. And so it was only sold for a certain amount, still the, the best amount we could get. And, be, and when I say sold, it's actually leased. The, Netflix does not own the IP or the film. Um, Netflix is leasing the film. And so I, my main concern was getting the rest of the money back. Yeah. And so they showed me in the other avenues and, and June 1st is where we start that process. We really, mm. yeah. Um, a couple questions. So how do you get the sales agents to come out to a screening? Like how does that whole process work? That's a great question. Um, I would say I teased companies that I wanted to consider us by sending them, I'd send them the opening. I would send them a scene. I'd send them the bath scene. I, Ooh. I would be like, Hey, this is an update. This is an update. And then my manager, she, she made some phone calls and then we were like, we're having a big fun party. Come see the screening at light iron. It's right near Arclight. Um, and they had a screening room and we had drinks you know, food, um, so it was a party. Wow. And so everyone came out and after that day, and, and that was on picture lock. So the movie wasn't even done yet. Um, Wait, so you showed the picture lock version at the screening? Holy fuck, okay, wow, amazing. Yeah, and that's another thing, Brian, bless his heart, the, my editor, he was like, we're not ready, we're not ready. We need, we need four more weeks. I was like, Brian? I'm out of money. We need to we need to have the screening so I can get this sold so I can get more money. Like the, like time is up. And that's the other thing is like when I make a deadline, like I stick to it. I make myself stick to it. Um, obviously there's like, you can push like a week or two, but I try so hard to just stick to that deadline. And so we did it. We, and, and also I believe in the creative process, right? So we found things in that screening that helped us tweak, you know, certain things. And so anyway, that created enough momentum, I think for Voltage to, Voltage wasn't at the screening, they heard about it. Nice. And then wow. they, they emailed over to Ramo Law, who's our legal mm -hmm. team and they're the best for independent film, by the way. Um, and Tiffany Boyle over there really danced that one. And, and anyway, the introductions were made and then they're, they just pitched me the best, um, you know, sales plan 
and gave us the best deal. Um, and they just, I could just tell they, I mean, everyone loved the film, but they really loved it. Wow. Yeah, they did I Feel Pretty, they did After, they do a lot of female sexuality. So I felt like that resume, hmm. it meant a lot for me, trying a filmmaker trying to get female sexuality out there that's, you know, from our perspective, from our gaze. Let's talk a little bit about the reception because, I mean, it was such a hit in terms of Netflix. Like, it was trending clearly. And you, I, I was reading your bio and all these things on your website, and I know that there are plans to extend the universe, if I can speak vaguely about uh, about an update here. Um, but I would say that critically, you faced a little bit of backlash. And is do you feel like people are just misinterpreting the film, or do you like where do you think the disconnect happened between your intentions and some of the reception? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the trailer. I love the trailer, but I do think it's a little um, misleading because it makes you think you're going to watch more of a lifetime movie. Mm. Um, but I also don't blame them for making that type of trailer because this is material that is kind of different out there. You know, this is the kind of material I, I on day one wanted to make when I arrived at USC. So is these these sort of erotic thrillers back to, you know, the pulp fiction type of stuff that I loved as a kid. Um, and so I think there's that um, aspect. I think that it's on you. I think it's you know, the the whole um, keep you guessing narrative and the idea that there could be three potential different choose your own adventures, right, mm -hmm. is something that really either bugs audiences and they dislike that and they hate, hate you for that or they love it, right? And it took me a few days to like come to grips with not being um, considered <laughs> by some true art because I feel like how dare you but also they're coming I understand they're coming from a place where they're comparing it to this and this and this and if you're doing that no it's gonna fail but if you compare it to what the intentions were which is to show female sexuality from a female gaze and to show that we can be more tantalizing and gripping than pornography then we get an A plus right <laughs> so it just depends on what frame you're looking through and i don't fault anyone for that i will say that there's a lot more material like this in my mind so if and i can make them for low budgets for the rest of my life i don't need to win everyone if i only win five or ten percent of the market i'll have a great life and we can make these movies you know wow very interesting um i have a very specific question about the film that i wanted to ask you not like a specific specific but more about just the intimacy scenes that you talked about and working with the intimacy uh, coach or intimacy i don't know what you call them but uh but what was the process for those scenes like how did you tackle them because i i had i've made a couple of films with sex scenes and i'm in one with a nude sex scene and uh you know i was just trying to figure it out and be as respectful as possible but i'd love to hear how you approach those the intimacy coordinator is such a fun unique new job that we have in our industry. And I think that it takes a special person to do it. Um, our coordinator is from New Mexico and she went through training that the DGA provides. And what's so great about it is I'm focused on the intent of the scene with the actors, right? The eyes and what's going on in that 
regard of their performance. The intimacy coordinator is actually about the semantics. Okay, here you're gonna do this and here you're gonna do that. And she just, because of her training, she just says it exactly how it is. Like, you know, and we're not actually doing these things, but this is how we're gonna make, you know, and she and I talk about the frame, right? And we bring in block people, you know, our, our stand-ins to block it. And the actors, and I'm very, I tell the actors exactly what I come, I say, come look at the monitor. This is what I'm showing, um, you know? And so I try to give them a place of security. Then the set is cleared and the only one in there, the only people in there are the um, study cam op or operate, camera operator, um, our sound, person who is tucked around the corner out of view or track, you know, or looks the other way. Um, and then myself and I think that's it. Yeah. The intimacy coordinator even leaves. Mm. Cause that's what my, that's what my actresses requested. Um, you know, it's funny. One of the things that like everyone in, in like from voltage and the, the sales team and, and the, you know, the, the folks over the DVD sales, they're like, we need more images. We need more images from set. And I'm like, well, um, half the time it was a closed set. And the other half of the time we had no money. So I only have five days worth of images, <laughs> you know, and, and they're just like, so we have to pull images from the movie um, to fulfill that, that quota or whatever. And it's just, it's, it's interesting because half the movie is, is, was closed. I um, want to be respectful of your time. So why don't we do one last question and then our final five, Ulrich, and I'll, sure. I'll let you do it. Okay. Well, I just wanted to dig deeper into your answer on that question and just like talk about like, what is your communication with, like with the actors themselves? Like, do you like, like, how do you walk through those sequences? Like, do you do like a, a, a standard rehearsal where you just sort of talk through them or do you save it all for those on the set for those moments with the intimacy coordinator? Like how do you communicate with them about those sequences? Well, weeks before, you know, I turned in those storyboards. Right, right. Back shots. And those went through a legality, formality, right? A legal oh. formality, Where I can't deviate from those shots. Oh, okay. So I had to have major clarity, right? The second thing is each actor likes different things. Dermot, fine on many accounts. He just wants the ladies to feel safe. That's un, and the set to be secured. Um, Kristen, because of her experience with Sex in the City, felt the intimacy coordinator kind sometimes jumbled her brain and she didn't like it as much. So I mm. told the intimacy coordinator, please, you know, just give her some space, right? With Greer, she wanted that security and that blanket. She wanted the intimacy coordinator right there telling her every beat, every moment, going over, practicing it with her. So I think it's really important that you are so in tune with your actors and what they what they want, and then just cater to them individually. Wow, amazing, love it. Just an acknowledgement that we didn't get to like one third of our questions and that we <laughs> still have like millions of things we wanna ask you about. And I think that's just a reflection of how interesting you are. And um, I'm hoping that uh, everyone who listens just like absorbs like, a degree of chutzpah from you, uh, <laughs> but jumping into oh, I, I was saying I took yeah. notes during this. This is amazing. Like I, I learned so much from this conversation. So thank well, you. I love you both. Have such great questions. It's really fun. So I, you're fine on time. Um, if you want to edit it down and and. 
take out things that aren't as exciting. Well, I everything is excited. <laughs> but I think the final five questions, honestly, we're going to go past 1130 probably. <laughs> so thank you very much for that, um, for us not having to rush those. Um, so what's the first film you've ever made and how do you feel about it now? And it could be short form, long form, whatever the first film. I think my first official film as an undergrad, I made a video to Enya. <gasps> I love Enya. Which song? Tell me more. Wow. It's that one. I don't know what it's called, but it was about a woman who needed to run and running was like a Far and away? Just kidding. I, uh, I think I, I love Far and away. Yeah. And <laughs> that was when I, I was in journalism in undergrad and um, we got the opportunity to make any film we wanted. And so I, I think I was 20 or 19 and that was my real first official film, probably. Um, and what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Good to great is painful. So the space from good to great right here is a lot of pain. So you have to lean into that pain. Same idea with doing the things that make you want to vomit. Um, because everything in life can be pretty good, but to get to great, it takes some chutzpah. Yeah. Wow. Are you going to, wow, that was good, but you said you had multiple. So I just want to see if there was any others that you wanted to share. Yeah. Let's see. Another one is, um, one of my mentors from USC said this, and I, I don't know who officially gets the credit on this quote, but I hate to write, but I'm glad to have written. I do actually hate writing because it's extremely painful and it's, emotionally exhausting and if you're not emotionally exhausted then you might not be writing about something you're truly passionate about but that same breath man it feels good when you've finished and it's of quality hopefully right so um i take that i i always remind myself when i'm writing you're gonna get through this you're gonna finish it's gonna be fine um what are your goals as a filmmaker I think I, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, I'd love to have like a library of works that made you think and saw things differently and hopefully from the female gaze and you appreciate our gaze a little bit more. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? I wish I had uh, not tried to please so many people. Because the more you try to please people, the more you're saying no to the things that please you. So Clint Eastwood, this is another great quote that I love, says 100% of success in this town is saying no 99% of the time. And I said, I love the word yes, obviously, but I think I said yes to too many people and it robbed me of what, I really should be doing. Uh, our last question is, is making movies hard? Very. I always I always say to my kids, because my boys, my teen boys want, you know, are, they're very intense athletes and my one boy wants to play NFL football or whatever. And I say to him, well, can't have a plan B, just go for plan A. Um, and, you know, um, filmmaking is, in my mind, like a sport, if you're not willing or 
able to understand that it's like playing in the NBA or the NBA or, or no, sorry. What's the major league MLB, sorry. Um, <laughs> the NBA, the MLB, any of those, you know, categories, then don't, don't come near this sport. Yeah. It's way too hard. And good, good to great is really painful, right? Yeah. There yes. you go. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Um, so lastly, where should people go if they want to find out more about you? Where should they go to watch your films? Where should they go to read more about your work? What should they do? Well, kissandtailproductions.com is always a great resource. We try to bank everything there. AnnaElizabethJames.com is another one. Um, in regards to Deadly Illusions, I'm super excited. We have a new trailer that's going to be released. It's going to be a little bit more edgy and pulpy. Uh, along with a new poster, and that's going to be June 1st, where you can find the film everywhere else in addition to Netflix. Congratulations. Wow. Yeah, seriously. Thanks, Amazing. you guys. Yeah, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for your transparency. I can't. I don't think we've ever had anyone share their actual budget if their budget was over $500,000. Like, no, I don't think anyone, or can you think of a time someone actually shared? Uh, yeah, well, the the Nels brothers did when there was like come on, Alric. Um. <laughs> <laughs> very rarely, very rarely does it happen. Let's put it that way. I don't know where this is gonna go, but I want to pause for a second. Maybe this is after yeah. the interview. Um, you gotta acknowledge uh, that Speed of Life is on Showtime. That's awesome, Liz. Oh no, that was since last year. So oh. no, this is not new. I was just like, I'm gonna brag about something. And no, you never that, brag that. about your movie. You never brag about anything. And like I, I was like looking online because, you know, um, this is re relevant to the Anna Elizabeth James conversation because you know her movie, like while giving so much love, got so much mean things said about it. Oh my yeah. god, it got all kinds of hate. I was going on IMDb, and it's painful what people said and then you know the critics weren't much better there were some favorable but mostly really rough and then i was looking at your movie because i was like oh is this just how it is and liz's movie gets all kinds of love you've got like eight out of ten on imdb you've got all people saying nice things you got some really pretty good reviews and you, the way that you talk about it would be like your movie's terrible and everyone hates it <laughs> But that's not true. People love your movie. I'm not the only one. So anyways, <laughs> I'm just saying. Sweet. I, um, it has come to my attention that I think I either hear only negative things or I only remember negative <laughs> things. <laughs> because I was talking to, to my husband about uh, whether his family liked Speed of Life. And I was like, well, your parents didn't like it very much. And he was like, no, my mom said that she laughed and she cried. Do you not remember her saying that to you? And I was like, no, I literally do not remember <laughs> her, that exchange. Um, so I, I think I'm, I choose to see the negative, uh, unfortunately. Thank you very much for that call out, Ulrich. I yeah. appreciate that. But going back to this episode, uh, yes. wow. <laughs> you, you'd said before the conversation that was one of your favorite conversations, and it's definitely yes. one of my favorite conversations. I mean, wow. Like, just to hear, um, you know, her approach to everything, to her career, like how she sees the world, how she sees um, her role as a filmmaker, and like how she needs to approach her career in order to be successful. It's really incredible. And it's like, yeah, you know, we just need to go out there and figure it out. And I mean, you know, she, she definitely got lucky. I mean, you have to say, like, finding a financier who's willing to do what they did for her is like, 
that's not everybody. That's actually. But is that luck? She's so strategic in the way she she navigates. I mean, there there aren't millions of people out there, you know, for all the millions of filmmakers who want to do that. I mean, there's very, very few people who are going to say yes to this deal. I mean, sure, she found them strategically. Like, it wasn't that she just ran ran to this person at a bar or whatever. But I mean, (laughs) like, you know, I'd say like 100 people could take the same exact strategy that Anna did. And I think, you know, 95 of them or maybe even 99 of them would fail and one would succeed, yeah. you know. So, yeah. I mean, you know, definitely it's repeatable. The stars aligned. But yeah, yeah, but it's not it's not like it's going to work for everyone who does this, you know. So, um, but good for her for making moment? it happen. <laughs> Do you remember that moment where she was talking about going to a party and people were asking her advice and she was like, we went, we took the same classes. We were we had the exact same opportunities. Like right. she really makes the most out of everything. Are there moments from the conversation where I like I'm picturing her sleeping in her car writing, you know, waking up to write, <laughs> sleeping in her car. Like I I'm not, anyway, I it made me think that if I were an actress or if I were a crew member on her sets, I would be really drawn into the like the confidence that she has and the dedication she has to her art. It is like incredibly infectious. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, well, you know, I hope everyone likes this conversation as much as we did because and gets as much out of it. Um, and, you know, I didn't see Deadly Illusions yet. Did you watch it? I did. You know what? I mean, oh, I didn't see the ending because I had to go pick up my kid. <laughs> but honestly, it's moves along really quickly it's really good performances it's super interesting i agree with anna that it's an exploration of one woman's sexuality and that's needed in today's society like it is does not deserve the negative blowback that has happened it just you know in some circles it does not deserve that at all yeah crazy i still need to watch it and i love these kinds of movies i love like um, you know, erotic thrillers from the nineties, you know, that's like my, one of my favorite genres or subgenres. Um, so I'm definitely going to watch this at some point. I don't know when, but I will. Maybe when I'm done trying to find all the robot jocks types movies out there, which is like right now what we're obsessed with. Um, but Liz, uh, I think, uh, get shorty. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. This week, we have a short from writer-director Cassandra Warner called Nightlight. Big shout-out to uh, Charn Star Anderson for bringing this film to us. There's another Aussie, which is oh, really wonderful. We're getting lots of other uh, films from Australia, thanks to Charn Star. But anyways, here's Cassandra to talk about her film. Hello, my name is Cassandra Warner. I am a film editor by trade today, but back in 2016, I was the writer-director for the short film Nightlight. Nightlight was my final project for my film degree. Uh, It would have been my second time making a short film during my studies, um, and I was pretty excited to be doing the whole process all over again. When I wrote the story, I remember I wanted the idea to be simple, be it a kid afraid of the dark. Um, And then I wanted to take that idea and develop that a bit deeper. Uh, I remember wanting the film to really revolve around the idea of fear um, and how that can manifest um, in different ways, which is a little bit more ironic now that I'm thinking about it, but I'll explain that a little bit later. As part of the project, we were asked to 
raise the funds through crowdfunding campaigns um which anyone who's done crowdfunding campaign will know that there is a very fine art in running a very successful campaign um so with that unfortunately we weren't able to raise all the funds that we wanted um but i was very 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 blessed to have friends and family donate money behind the scenes to help the film get over the line Nightlight was the first time I had to work with a child actor, which at first was really, really daunting. Uh, we auditioned our main actor, Joshua Mesmore, on Star Now. Um, he was so, so passionate and so driven. And even working with his mum, who was on set and in the audition, um, she really trusted me as a director to work with Josh. So, you know, the whole experience was really, really great. Before filming, I was nearing the end of my degree, so I had this idea in my head that, you know, oh, this film is going to catapult me into the industry, because it has to, otherwise, what's going to happen next? And I think with that notion created a, a huge pressure on myself, and I I planted a seed, and I planted this fear in my head, this, you know, self-doubting fear that's that was saying, you know, what if what I was doing I wasn't actually good at and then after filming Nightlight it you know it didn't catapult me into the industry and I played into that fear and you know it got to the point where I didn't write or direct for a really really long time and I know that sounds like a really sad ending to the story but you know it it goes to show that you know making movies is hard and it's not just, you know, the physicalities of actually going out and making a film. It's, you know, the mental power it takes to create a film, especially as a director, because, you know, you're the brain of the whole operation. So, you know, when I look at Nightlight now, now that it's in the world, you know, its purpose for me is, you know, showing me how far I've come. You know, that was five years ago. Um, since then, I've worked on so many different projects in different roles, and I've really learned who I am as a filmmaker along the way. So when I see Nightlight, I see how far I come. So it's really, really, you know, quite nostalgic in a way. Um, the final question that I have been given is if I could go back um, and do things differently story-wise, um, what changes would I make? Um, and I wrote that script in a day. I pitched it the next day um, and then it was just go, go, go from then on there. So I think if I were to go back and change it, I wouldn't really change anything story-wise. I think I really, really like the heart of the film and, you know, the story beats that it takes us on. But I think the biggest change I would make is really taking my time to really sink my teeth into it and develop the characters a little bit more, um, build, you know, a well-rounded, for each character, um, a well-rounded storyline for them and, you know, stronger dialogue. Um, I think that would, you know, lift the film immensely. Um, but that has been my experience with Nightlight. Um, I know it's not the most glamorous lens into what it takes to make a short film, but I think if there are any, you know, struggling student filmmakers out there um, that do have that fear, um, that self-doubt, I think the most important thing to remember is that, you know, the, the projects that you do in school is not the last thing you're ever going to do. You're 
just scratching the surface of what you know your career is going to even look like I think you know take the time to discover yourself as a filmmaker um and don't don't be so hard on yourself and enjoy the ride remember to enjoy the ride and who knows one day you know five years later um a really really cool podcast is going to see the short film and think it's worth talking about (laughs) um but with that you know thank you so much for having me on this podcast it's been such a pleasure thank you I believe that she recorded this in her car, which is amazing. I haven't watched it yet, but I just saw the frame and it looks incredible. So hopefully it's as incredible as I think it's going to be. Um, but Liz, what did you think of Nightlight? Um, I, mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's start out with the fact that like there's a really great intention to this story here right like the intentions are really commendable like you know you follow the fear the really pivotal fears of a young boy and in somewhat of a broken household and you know that's actually i don't see a lot of young boys being scared in short films i don't know i'm trying to find things um i think cassandra did a great job but here are my issues (laughs) um i was having trouble tracking characters relationships to each other i thought the young woman talking to the protagonist was his mother for the first few minutes and then i come on to realize it's his sister um so and i also felt like the young man who is our protagonist felt too old to be afraid of the dark um like i just maybe felt like that character should be aged down a little bit though i understand it's not really being afraid of the dark it's being afraid of something else but it still felt hard to believe to buy into the concept um the vocal performances there's some off-screen fighting of the of um the father and the daughter that i thought were really unrealistic i thought the audio levels were inconsistent for film about the darkness i didn't think we went visually dark enough like you could see very clearly in the environment there weren't enough shadows it wasn't enough contrast for me i kept thinking um turn on your computer that's your nightlight that that you don't have to worry about this flash just turn on the computer like i just kept thinking you're looking at me all right and i just feel like really bad for (laughs) like i know you're just listening but i've seen i've seen myself through your eyes um I just thought that there were some loopholes in the story and some decisions in the casting and the execution that weren't incredibly effective. And I think that Cassandra, I'd love to hear how she feels about it. I think I think she can do better. That's what I'm just going to say. it. I think you could do better, Cassandra. Cassandra. <laughs> wow. That's interesting feedback, um, reaction. Um, <laughs> so I think I'm with you on the whole mother thing. Like, I think I also did think that her sister was her mother at first, but then later, like once the dad came into picture, the picture, it became clear that, there, that it's a brother and a sister, you know? Um, there's a lot of shouting in this movie, um, which is interesting. Um, you know, everyone's shouting at each other all the time, especially like the son, the, the father's shouting at the daughter, and then later the father's shouting at the son, and it's just like the shouting matches. And I mean, sure, like, you know, some families have a lot of shouting going on, but um, yeah, it felt like over the top to a degree where, you know, your buy-in doesn't really happen anymore because it, it's just everything is one level. It's just not 
multiple levels. I was actually watching it and then thinking like, oh, they kind of have a, the same issue that I had with Awaken where it's like it's all tilted, you know, like there's no besides that one scene where we thought that she was his mother. There's no varying degrees of um, of tone throughout. Um, I, I will say that I did like the kid. I thought he was good. Um, you know, I mean, I think that, uh, yeah, maybe he was aged a little older, but I think maybe that was the point of why the dad was supposed to be so frustrated with him because it's like you are like way, way too old to be afraid of the dark. Like what's going on here? Um, you know, I, I overall liked the tone. I thought the music was good. Um, I thought that the way that they, um, you know, conveyed the the tension was was pretty good, especially in the quiet moments when there's no dialogue. I thought those moments were working for me. Um, I, I do agree it wasn't dark enough. There's also some kind of weird, like, like I don't know if it's like some something on the you know when bringing it bringing the video onto online or something, but there was a lot of this like where you, it, the the blacks and the darkness wasn't crisp. It was like kind yeah. of um, blotchy, digitally yeah. blotchy in in a way. Yeah, which that's I, compression, isn't it? Isn't that? I think it might be compression. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's compression. It could be compression from the camera too, depending on the the, the type of camera they used. Uh, it could be just the way that that camera processes blacks. Um, mm. You know, well, because you're noticing it so much because the visual effects is true is really right. dark black, right? right? The shadows on top of the shadows. Um, I will say <laughs> that I appreciated the monster in the beginning with the hand and like the smoke yeah. and the way the smoke kind of came up. But then later in the movie, when the smoke moves to the house and it kind of like moves around like fast, kind of like a um, like a beehive, you know, in a cartoon mm-hmm. or something um, or like a, a swarm of bees or something um, that kind of felt a little <laughs> weird. Like I wished it would yeah. s- continue to smoke out the way it was. Um, but my biggest problem with this movie is, um, the, uh, the ending because it's like, there's this woman creature that's over the boy, you know, that's a smoke creature. And you're like, Oh, is it like the ghost of his mother? And then like, he hits him with a random thing. And then, you know, yeah, 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 he hits the monster with a random thing, which we find out later is this camera that's like this new camera gift that was sitting in the living room randomly with a bow on it, maybe for some reason, um, which doesn't quite track unless it's like no. it was under a Christmas tree, but there's no Christmas tree. It's not Christmas. Um, and anyways, but then it's the dad staring at the boy and then the boy and the dad stare at each other. It's almost like, yeah, the boy's realizing the monster was the dad all along. And then the dad's looking at the boy like, yeah, I'm the monster. But but there's no correlation to like why he would be the monster, or 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 any, and especially between the monster being the woman creature and now it being the dad, it's like yeah. just like a lot of like missing pieces of like why does this yeah. make any sense at all? Like it doesn't. Yeah. I don't understand what's going. on. <laughs> the concept. I think that's why I was trying to say like the intentions are great, right? Like it's a kind of non traditional story of domestic abuse and like that. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. I'm on board for that. But yeah. I totally agree. It's like if this is a puzzle, it's half the puzzle. Like half the puzzle pieces are missing. I yeah, think. or they're not. They don't fit together 
you know, or right. they're the wrong piece or something, you know. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I thought was weird is that the dad's got the thicker beard earlier on. And then the final shot, he's got a much shorter beard. So oh, it was like almost that. like yeah. they must have shot that later. Uh, you know, like it was like an idea Cassandra had to like change the ending or something. Or maybe the ending wasn't working the way that she had it before. So it's like, oh, this will be a new way to like really like throw people off but it's like a fun ending but it just didn't connect to the rest of the movie in a way yeah. you know and i like the way that the sister came in and was like oh dad what's going on what's happening and like i thought those the way that was shot was cool it's just like but it just didn't make any sense you know um and so that was uh so i thought it was a missed opportunity because i really thought we were gonna go um and maybe it's a trope, but I really thought he was going to grab the camera, use the flash of the camera as mm. the nightlight, and capture his dad. Like, mm. I thought that's what it was going to be. Mm. Because then it was going to, I think that could have tied it all together. The idea of fear, the idea of documentation, the idea of confronting, the idea of, like, a light in the darkness. Like, uh, but we never got there. He just uses the camera as a weapon. So I, I think there's a missed trajectory of, of making it even more poetic now we're nah, whatever it's cassandra it's your film i'm sorry i'm not trying to be a backseat direct um right. but it is from four years ago so i would love cassandra please send us something or churn star please send us something newer and we'd love to champion you too. Yeah. yeah find a movie from cassandra that she wants to share that is newer that we can yeah. talk about i think and actually, to be, oh go on go on i was go, what were you gonna say I was going to say, to be fair, like, honestly, if we did one of my films and we may because we may run out of get shorties, there are so many horrible things that oh, I would yeah. say equally to my work. So I I feel guilty because we haven't really piled it on, on someone for a while. Maybe we did last week. We did. Last um, week. Yeah. So I, I just I just want to make sure that we're not deterring Cassandra because there's potential here. And that's why we're we're we're. Well, she didn't even want to send it originally. She was like, oh, it's not good enough. I don't want to send it. It's not worthy of being talked about, you know. And I think there are oh. things that are worthy to be talked about in this movie, yes. which is why, you know, there's a lot that that I liked about it. Um, and I think even the things that missed are still worthy to talk about because then we can explore these things. Um, yeah. So hopefully this isn't like bone crushing to <laughs> Cassandra and her deepest fears realized of like, oh, God, this is why I didn't want to have this, sh this movie on the show. Um, I did want to ask, two, you, you wrote two notes here that are really interesting to me is like hair. You have hair in with an explanation point. What's that about? It wasn't your beard note. It was my, I have a pet peeve about people in bed with perfect hair in uh, movies. Uh -huh, yeah. And I was like, I'm not going to, I've already said enough. What am I going <laughs> to criticize the hairstylist too? So I chose not to say it. And then you said the title is at one minute and 21 seconds. Is that a problem for you to have like, you know, a cold open with a title on a short film? Do we feel like short films are so short that we don't get the cold open opportunity on a short? Is that the deal? Yeah. It's just a little... It just feels like it's kind of this throwback to like old school mm -hmm. filmmaking. I just think it's kind of a past trope, but um, mm -hmm. that's me being judgy yet again. Not a huge deal. All right. Know. Well, we know that good old Gary Kennedy is going to watch this and give us his thoughts. So, Gary, <laughs> let us know what you think of this film because we want to know. Um, but, Liz, I think you've got mail. No, you've got mail. You've got mail. You've got mail. <laughs> My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've got mail. All right, so 
previous Get Shorty guest of my favorite Get Shorty film of all time, Kenyan, Kyle freaking Kenyon, who chose to pull quote Ulrich's review of, <laughs> of Dad Pals, um, wrote us an email. So uh, Kyle freaking Kenyon says, or just Kyle says, hey, Liz and Ulrich, I just want to say I really appreciated the conversation you two had about goals and dreams at the end of episode 310. So this was, this is Jen McGowan, right? This is the Jen McGowan episode. I think it is. Yes. It was in reference to Jen McGowan, regardless of whether it was on that episode. But episode 310, I listened to a lot of filmmaking podcasts. And the one thing none of the others seem to talk about is how do these indie directors afford to make stuff? Just hearing Liz say that some of these guys rely on their wives for income or that some of these people come from wealthy families is truly a relief to hear. It makes me feel like I'm not crazy for having struggles getting my own films made. Um, he said, I, I grew up in the Ozarks and therefore have no film connections. Ha ha. Uh, all right. Kyle continues. Me and my partner are currently working on a crowdfunding campaign for our first feature. And it could be so disheartening to find out all my filmmaking heroes came from money or had some lucky break that a lot of people just don't get. But hearing you two legitimate accomplished filmmakers. Look, all Rick were legitimate. <laughs> Amazing. Someone calls us legitimate. <laughs> I love it. It makes me feel good. <laughs> Um, hearing you two be honest about the difficulty of navigating directing careers and lives is so great and I really appreciate it you're right making movies is hard Alric Kyle is is lovely even though he likes you more than me I don't think that's true um, but uh, but yes it is a very lovely email it it made me feel like okay you know these conversations are helpful because p- people are re- reacting to them and they are taking them on and, and, and using that as inspiration to keep going and, and making their films, which is really what it is. Like I just talked to a filmmaking friend of mine uh, yesterday and he was like, Ulrich, how do I get a producer attached to my movie? Ulrich, how do I do what you did? And like, you know, whatever, make the alternate, blah, blah, blah. And it, it's just like, you know, and he already has a bunch of money raised. I'm just like, dude, mm. you got the money. Like, if you can make your movie for the money that you already have, make the movie now. Like, don't yes. like look for money because you're gonna be looking for money forever. And and he said a thing to me that I, that was really interesting. <laughs> it was like, you know, Ulrich, I raised X amount of money, but you know, which like I would have said before I had it. Oh my gosh, like if I only had X, I would make my feature. But now I want double X. You know, and and I was like, yeah, but if you got double X, then you would want would double that. You know, and you're you're gonna always want more. Just make the movie now. Like, you can make it. Like, yeah. we've, I, I, you know, like, we could, you could do it. Like, you don't have the, like, the only obstacle you have right now is finding the actors willing to make the movie that you want to make. Find those actors and go make the movie. And I, I feel, I feel like that's, like, the best advice ever is, like, don't wait for this mm-hmm. permission. Don't wait for this thing that, this, this, like, carrot above you that's dangling. Like, you may never get it. Like, if you can do it, do it with what you got. Anyways. Yeah, because you're going to wait the year for more money or two years or three years. And you could have made that movie and released it in that time. Yeah. And moved on to the next project. And make the next movie and then make the next movie. And I think that's what's really important. And what what I aspire to do as a filmmaker is to to just keep making movies and not get stuck on on a project, you know. Um, Very quickly, Kyle Kenyon, please send us your crowdfunding campaign. And I'm happy to repost it on Twitter for you just because of Dad Pals and how great it is. And if you want the treatment that we gave um, AJ (laughs) Starzak, where we really dig in and talk about what works and what doesn't work with your crowdfunding campaign, we'd probably do that too um, if you wanted to. So let us know if you can handle that, if if you're willing (laughs) to be open to uh, the criticism. 
we are here. Um, you wrote Air Duct. What the hell? <laughs> so on the last episode where we interview Chelsea Christer, I made some joke about how I should be going on Twitter and asking people what their favorite Air Duct scenes from movies are. And I went and I did it. And we got like four responses. <laughs> so oh, nice. I wanted to share the four people who responded to the query, name your favorite or any movie that features an air vent slash duct other than Die Hard or Aliens. So Lucas Culshaw referenced Tenacious D in The Pick of Destiny, mm-hmm. which I haven't seen, but apparently solid air duct scene. Yeah, I remember it. Um, that movie to me had the best opening and the best ending. And then the middle was oh. questionable. But yes, the air duct scene I do remember being being pretty good. <laughs> Um, Nigel Gould Davies references, of course, Brazil, which Ah. should have come to mind immediately. Um, I think I just think about the pneumatic tubes. I never think about the air ducts. So um, if I remember, oh, God, no, I'm nervous. There's no pneumatic tubes. No, there definitely are pneumatic tubes. Right. That's like the whole thing is like Mm -hmm. Um, one month movies uh, just shared a a gif of um, uh, Mission Impossible. Mm -hmm. So that makes a lot of sense. And then Marcus Holcomb shared. an image from, uh, oh my God, White Castle. Oh my God, what is the name? Oh, so Harold and Castle. Kumar. Harold and Kumar. Yeah. yeah. That that Harold air duct for all that. The air duct scene in Mission Impossible is like incredible. I just watched that again recently, and like oh. Janet Reno, like holding on to the um, Janet Reno. Oh, John Reno. John Reno. Sorry, I called him Janet Reno. <laughs> Janet Reno would be so great. John Reno holding on to the thing, and then like. It falling out of the grasp and in you know Tom Cruise tumbling down and then the knife and yes. falling, wonderful, really really great. Um, we have another letter to read, but I think we should save it for next week because let's save it. Yeah, we don't need these episodes to be one million years long. They're too long. I deem our episodes too long. They will be shorter now. Um, we also have more wonderful antics from Gary and the YouTube crew, but we'll save that for next week too because too long. Uh, Liz, take us out. Oh, hey. Um, if you want to reach out to us, as we mentioned, via email, YouTube comments, um, Patreon, here are the ways to do that. Uh, you could go to our YouTube page, which is Making Movies is Hard, and you can um, leave a comment, leave a question, up, like our like our videos, whatever you want to do. You can support the show on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash podcast, and give whatever you can. Honestly, every dollar really counts, and it all goes to editing the show. Um, or you can send us an email, a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. And if you really like the show, which we hope you do, leaving a review on iTunes is um, actually really wonderful. We got one a few weeks ago, and we've just been, like, raising it up to the ceiling and brushing its hair and, (laughs) you know, to get really (laughs) – we just exalt it. Um, Finally, uh, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube, as I mentioned, at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. I am now following people back on these platforms and trying to engage – so we're working on it. So please join us along the way. Amazing. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And thanks to Anna Elizabeth James for being on the show. Really, again, completely amazing conversation. So open and honest. Which, like, you know, especially as someone who has made that many movies and is on this trajectory to keep on making movies, you don't necessarily get as much honesty. And so we really appreciate that from, from Anna. Um, you can check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com. Still not updated, uh, <laughs> but one day it stop will be. Stop saying that. I'll stop saying it. I need to. 
do it. I have to. Um, and thanks to editor Cameron or me for doing the editing. I have not decided even now who's going to do it. I haven't asked Cameron. I feel like I want to do it, but I just, I'm doubting my ability at the moment. So I think I'm going to email him now and be like, look, can you do it? If you can, it's yours. Um, and thanks everyone for listening. And we'll, uh, we'll touch you guys next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.